time to barrel down as we uncork the Indiana beverage industry one bottle at a time. Good morning. I am so excited to have my colleague, Jill Bloom, join us on the Pop Swirl. Jill, good morning. Good morning, Katie. How are How you? you? This morning. No Ooh. rain. Woohoo. Jinx. Yeah, it is finally sunny in Indiana. Seems like an unheard thing. We've had so much rain this fall. It's kind of been crazy. So, Jill, go ahead and introduce yourself. Tell our listeners who you are, um, maybe some of the items that you oversee as your position, and we'll dive right in. Okay, thanks, Katie. Um, let's see, I am, again, I'm Jill Bloom, and I'm the Enology Extension uh, Specialist for the Purdue Wine Grape team. And a few things that I um, have been doing for quite a few years now with the industry. Um, one that I think is really important um, to help promote quality wines is I do lab analysis. Um, so Indiana wineries can send me troubled wines, good wines, harvest samples. I can get back with you very rapidly on say um, your pH, your titratable acidity, how much alcohol, how much sulfites, um, you know, has your wine gone through malolactic fermentation? And some of the things I do um, uh, are kind of diagnostic. Sometimes people just send me samples so they can compare their lab analysis to mine. Um, so that's one thing. Another thing I read, uh, that goes along with that is sensory. Um, I have, I've been called a beagle because um, I have a good nose, but <laughs> I guess I was just born that way. <laughs> Maybe you were born that way. I was, I was born that way. I can't help it. I've never had like any tests done to see if I'm a super sensor, but um, personally, I just smell things that sometimes other people don't. <laughs> it's not always. I'm going to get you a t-shirt that says that. <laughs> So, but I enjoy sensory and, um, along with that, um, I can kind of knowing what I smell, I can help diagnose the wine or tell you how you can improve it or, um, fix that in the future or, you know, prevent that with your next batch of wine or, or something like that. So, um, that's those things I really enjoy along with that. I also, um, I've worked in the vineyard before prior to being the enology um, specialist. So I know quite a bit about hybrids. Um, that's one thing that I kind of pride myself on is that I've been working with um, hybrid grape varieties now for 25 years. So I know a lot, a lot about hybrids, um, how they grow, how they do in the vineyard, you know, sensory aspects and things like that. Um, and along with hybrids, um, we also host the Indy International Wine Competition here at Purdue. So um, we accept all kinds of grape varieties from around the world, including hybrids. Um, we probably have one of the largest hybrid wine competitions, I'd say, around. Um, we also accept fruit wines, amateur wines, meads, ciders, you know, all kinds of dessert wines, sparkling wines. Um, and I also judge wines as well. Um, 
you know, I haven't been judging too many wines in the past two years because of the pandemic, but um, I'll be starting again next month going to Kansas City, Missouri. So that's a little bit about what I do. And um, it's just and you're just a rock star with your sensory nose, your super sensor nose. So for our listeners, um, if you've never heard the term hybrid, what we're talking about is um, grapes that especially are their bred to do well in the Midwest. And so you might have seen varieties like La Crescent or Save All Blanc, maybe Traminette because that's Indiana's state wine grape. Um, these are just a few of the hybrid grapes that we're talking about that our coworker Miranda actually has a vineyard um, just about 10 minutes from Purdue with some of these hybrids in it. And many of our Indiana vineyards have um, these grapes that are found in there as well. So hybrid grapes, um, Jill works a lot with in our lab. Jill, you mentioned that you've been here just a few years, and I think a few years um, maybe plus a couple because you've been around the Indiana industry really since they, they started, if you will. Um, and with the Pretty Wine Grape team, you've been a member of the Wine Grape Council. So a couple of terms that we can explain, but how did you find your job? How did you start in the vineyard? And then what led you over to the analysis or the enology side? Um, well, kind of a loaded question. <laughs> I know. I was going to talk about hybrids, but that's okay. Um, you can talk about hybrids? Okay, let me go back to hybrids because yeah. I think hybrids, um, the name is kind of, it doesn't tell all about the grapes. I think there's, we need to give more credit to hybrids because if we talk about Traminette, the cool thing about Traminette is that its parent is Gravertstraminer. So a lot of these have well-known parents or famous parents. Um, another grape variety is Chardonnay and its parent is Chardonnay. And you mentioned Save All um, Blanc and its parent is Sauvignon Blanc. So um, these hybrids just aren't um, crazy grape varieties. They actually have really cool rock star parents. And some of those um, attributes of the parent come through in the hybrid grape. So that's what's cool about hybrids. And we can grow them here in our extreme um, cold temperatures. You know, we get a lot of rain, so they do well here. Okay, back to how I got into uh, viticulture and enology. It was purely by accident. Um, and it was because my mom, I applied at Purdue in ag-related jobs and, um, I actually placed in two positions. One was groundskeeper. I love, and I have a background working for the parks department, blah, blah, blah. The other position besides groundkeeping was a viticulture technician. I had no idea what viticulture meant, so I looked it up. It was grape growing. And so I talked to my mom and she said, oh, well, that sounds fun. You've never done that before. And honestly, it's history from there. I interviewed with Dr. Bruce Bordelon. I always say our birthdays are on the same day. So he loved me from the get-go. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> but anywho, um, I applied, it worked. And um, he's, and Dr. Bruce Bordelon is still one of my 
um, great friends. I just talked to him yesterday and, um, I'm very blessed and, um, it's, it's been a, it's been a fun road. And so Jill, when you started, Dr. Vine was on, um, was, I guess the faculty member for, um, or in Purdue food science. And so kind of give us a backstory on Dr. Vine because he's very well known throughout the Indiana wine industry. Um, very well known, kind of a staple behind the Indy International when it first started, especially our trophies. I love to tell that story. Um, when I'm out on the road or you and I are in a tasting room and we hear comments about those. So kind of tell us about Dr. Vine and, um, and the path that he led for our industry. Okay. Um, Dr. Vine Yes, that's his real name. It's Dr. Richard Vine. Everyone goes, no way. Yeah, it's his real name. Um, V-I-N-E. Anywho, um, Dr. Vine um, was in the wine industry. He was when Dr. Phil Nelson, who was head of our department, he uh, and Dr. Vine were good friends. Dr. Vine was at Mississippi State. And he was also consultant for American Airlines. He was the wine consultant. And normally, well, I should say, I was always led to believe a wine consultant for international flights. Um, People would want a wine when they traveled. So Dr. Vine's job with American Airlines was to select a list of wines. So when he came to Purdue, Um, He was also the wine consultant for American Airlines. So we received cases and cases of wines, um, you know, every week from international wineries. And it was really cool because we, with all these wines, not only did he taste the wines, but we also then had enough wines to stock our library that's in the basement of this building. We had plenty of wines for wine appreciation class. Um, we just had a lot of international wines. And um, Dr. Vine was well-traveled and known throughout the world. So um, he retired, I don't know, probably about 15 years ago. And um, he still lives in southern Indiana with his wife. And um, we do keep in contact. And he still drinks wine, of course. So. Oh, he's a great guy. Wine. One of my favorite. Hobbies. Oh, and you mentioned the trophy. Okay. So yeah. he was also, um, so there was a wine competition at the state fair and it started out for amateur uh, winemakers and the state fair wanted to become more of a, a larger commercial wine competition. And so when Dr. Vine came to Purdue, the state fair asked if he wanted to elevate the competition and make it for commercial wines, maybe international. He said, sure, I'll do that. And so being a consultant at American Airlines, um, he wanted a really fabulous, classy trophy. Um, and American Airlines sponsored the trophies for, you know, best wine and, you know, wine of the year. And uh, so the maker of the trophy was the same designer who designed the Oscars. And so there was just a spectacular eagle on top of a cup. Um, And it was, it's really pretty and really intricate. And we still have the final one. But unfortunately, a few years ago, this company stopped making that trophy. And so we've had to look for a new trophy since. 
But the new trophies are still, um, they're a yeah, statement they're, piece in the yeah, wine. Classy, classy. Yeah. And they help wine consumers kind of, or tourists, maybe not even wine consumers, start a conversation with that tasting room personnel and say, what is that? Or we also give out medals for the Indian International. So what does that medal mean? I think there's still value in wine competitions um, from both the consumer side from the winery side and then from a professional standpoint because you get to um, taste a lot. So these wine competitions are a blind tasting as well for those who might not realize that. And so wine judges really do get to taste the best of the best, the new of the new, the different of the different, if you will, in a blind tasting. And so there's a lot of education that goes in for those wine competitions as well. So we mentioned the indie um, different wine competitions throughout the United States. There's actually more than 11,000 wineries in the domestic United States. Um, the top four wine producing states being California, Oregon, Washington, and New York. And Jill, you've spent a lot of time um, with our colleagues in New York as well, not only with their wine competition, but working with their hybrid grapes. What would you say is um, one of the biggest parallels between New York and Indiana as far as their quality or the varieties that they grow, their wine list? Um, I guess our, when I say what, how we're alike, we're both, I would consider us cool climate um, regions. So when you think about cool climate regions, you think of wines maybe a little lighter in style, more acidic, um, and along with that, we also have fruit wines, um, New York and all through the Midwest, we have fruit wines. We also have wines maybe that are a little fruitier and even a little sweeter. And sometimes they don't have to be cloyingly sweet, but they have maybe a little residual sugar. And that's basically to balance the acid. Um, a lot of people like sweet wines as well, but sometimes sugar has to be added or at least the fermentation stopped just to control all the acid that our grapes produce. Yeah. And the United States accounts for 12% of global wine production. Um, that's a whole domestic United States. But in Indiana, we did an economic impact survey, oh, about five years ago. Um, and we had a total economic impact of $603 million to the state of Indiana with um, about 3,900 full-time employees serving all of our wineries. And so, Jill, when you started a few years ago, um, how many wineries were there? You know, I think there was just around 15 wineries. Um, and most of those were in southern Indiana, but there was a few, there was, you know, Anderson was in Valpo, there was Easley and French Lick and Oliver and Huber. And uh, a few just scattered around, but we could, you know, and that was even prior to everybody having email. So to contact people, we would just call them and say, hey, we're having a workshop. Are you coming? And um, <laughs> how times have changed. And what year was that? That was around 1996. Woo! And today, I think I counted just yesterday, we have 123 wineries that span 67 of Indiana's 92 counties. Wow. So um, in Indiana, we consider a wine also a, a wine, but we also consider meat and cider part of our 
wines as well. So that 120 number includes some meaderies and cideries um, within the state of Indiana. You know, Another, Katie, you mentioned really quick um, yeah. production, the top four producers yeah. in the country. And I don't think you should forget about Indiana because I think people are always amazed that we're, I think, 11th in production. Yeah. And it, we're right around number 10. And um, it's huge. So Indiana, is, we're not just, you know, 40th. We're, we're 10th. 11th. I think we're about 11th. Well, Lynn, um, we've talked quite a bit about grapes and the vineyard. And so grapes are the highest valued fruit crop in the United States. And we grow almost a million acres of grapes, whether that's raisins, table grapes, wine grapes. And Indiana actually has between seven and 800, we're thinking, um, grape bearing acres. So vineyards throughout the state. Um, we've talked to Jennifer Luter from Country Heritage just a few episodes ago that they have over a hundred acres of grapes that they're growing, maintaining, and using to produce their state-grown wines. So Indiana isn't just corn and soybeans and wheat. I mean, we, we grow quite a, a decent amount of grapes, um, but Indiana's climate is just so crazy that sometimes it's hard, but with hybrids, it makes it easier um, for wineries to to add on that other tourist experience or perception experience of the vineyard. Yeah, and I think Huber Winery has really um, done a great job of having that educational aspect as part of their operation. Um, for our listeners that have never been to Huber's, it is quite the experience to go and see everything from um, pumpkins in the fall to cut your own Christmas trees in the winter. Um, I am unsure how many acres of vineyards they have, but it is truly spectacular to kind of dr drive through the rolling hills of Southern Indiana to see all of their fields of fruit, um, other agriculture products. All of their vineyards are truly amazing. Um, and they have quite the agritourism educational center, if you will, that's part of their operation um, that really just aims to educate the industry. And the Huber family has been educating for um, quite a long time. And they, they've been great supporters of the Purdue program um, and Indiana wine, which I think is really cool. Hubers are also um, a part of the Indiana Uplands AVA. So um, Jill, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about um, what an AVA is. We're going to talk to Jim Butler um, later on this fall, but just an overview because Indiana actually has two AVAs um, in the state being the Indiana Uplands and the Ohio River Valley um, AVA. And so the probably the most well-known is the Indiana Uplands and one of my favorite um, events that they ooh, I guess I have two one of my probably my favorite event is their chocolate lovers weekend um, in Valentine or around Valentine's Day and then they also host a wine pairing dinner in late August so Jill why don't you take it away from there Okay, um, when we say AVA, what do we mean? And that stands for an American Viticultural Area. So viticulture means grape growing. And AVA is basically, it's a stretch of land or a piece of land or a geographical area that um, 
has something common or or in that area it makes it unique so the uplands ava well i should go back indiana has two avas and one is called the ohio river valley ava and so it's not actually it's not state defined it's regional defined um, within the territory so the ohio river uh, ava encompasses a couple states okay i'll have to look that up okay. and i think it's kentucky and ohio but i'm not for sure on that and so the uplands um, ava goes from um it goes from bloomington area clear to i believe it almost goes to the ohio river valley and so it's a it's an area that has knobs it's hilly you know i always say because we're from west lafayette that it's that area that the glacier didn't hit so the reason we're so smooth and non-hilly in this area is because the glacier all of that good stuff to <laughs> south of Indianapolis and that's created the uplands area I don't know if that's correct or not but that's um, I think the the glacier kind of stopped and, and so it didn't push the hills and that's why they have those nice rolling hills and the hardwood forest and all all that and some of Indiana's most notable wineries are in the uplands ABA including Oliver um, Oliver Winery, Windsorwald Winery, Turtle Run, um, and more. Like I said, we'll talk to Jim in just a couple episodes, so I don't want to spoil too much for him. Um, one thing I really wanted to get to, and Jill, you mentioned it earlier, um, that Indiana, our state wine grape is Tramonette. And so that was enacted, what, maybe 10 years ago? Um, seven, eight, 10 years ago. And since then, Tramonette has been more of a trouble in the vineyard for different reasons. And so we've kind of pivoted just a little bit and really capitalized on Indiana's fruit wines. And so our next episode, we're actually going to talk to Noah Heron at Urban Vines about innovation of his fruit wines. But I think people have this perception that fruit wines are just full of sugar and they're like a grape juice, a Welch's grape juice or um, fruit wines are only for summer. And I think that perception is completely inaccurate because Indiana makes some really good fruit wines, um, some really great seasonal wines um, that can be talked about. So I guess walk us through how Indiana's fruit wines maybe stand out from the rest. We'll just talk in terms of Midwest really quick. And what makes us different in that category? Yeah, um, when I think of fruit wines, I think definitely of the Midwest and anywhere basically east of the Rockies. You know, if you go to out west, you may see an apple wine now and then, but you hardly ever see a cherry or a raspberry, you know, peach wine, watermelon. I can just go on and on. Rhubarb. Rhubarb. I just right. had rhubarb last week and that was delicious. That's right, rhubarb. And I'm sure we're forgetting many other fruits. You know, lemon now. There's lemon wines that are lemon or lime. So, yeah. Um, but the Midwest, it's kind of, um, we're kind of the fruit wine, I guess, area of the United States. 
and uh, blueberry wine just thought of another one mm -hmm. and and we do it really well again because i think our clientele here in the midwest is um is there our clientele is receptive to fruitier um even sweeter style wines and again you said they don't have to be sweet and they don't have to be sweet but a lot of them are are acidic Mm -hmm. um, but unlike grape wines that really don't taste nor they normally don't taste like grapes, um, fruit wines usually always taste like the fruit they're from. So a cherry wine should taste like a cherry and a blueberry wine tastes like a blueberry. Um, when we think of grape wines, um, you know, they don't always taste like Welch's grape juice unless we're having a wine made from Concord grapes, which, which is very common. But um, yeah, fruit wines are really have taken off and not only fruit wines, but we have fruit flavored wines. So you can take a grape based wine um, and add fruit flavoring to it. You know, they're, they're doing that now in the, the beer industry, the spirits industry, the bourbon industry, Add, adding flavoring to wines um, is pretty common now too. And those fruit wines can be used in many different ways. I mean, we've talked a lot about the seltzer craze. Um, so maybe not using them in seltzers, but our slushies that are very popular, different wine cocktails. Um, many of them have a fruit wine base. So sangrias, sangrias, mold um, wines. You can put fruitier wines in crock pots and add some cinnamon sticks. Perfect for Saturday morning tailgates, I will say. Um, and maybe one of my favorite wines, um, since we're kind of segueing to the holidays is a cranberry wine. I mean, that would go great with Thanksgiving, um, dinner, lunch, same for Christmas dinner, lunch, and they, they pair well with a lot of our Hoosier hospitality, um, food favorites, if you will, pecan pie, pumpkin pie, turkey, turkey. Oliver does, um, a seasonal apple pie wine that is very, very popular and many of our other wineries do as well. And it just kind of builds the hype for the holidays. And I, I think that's something special that Indiana has done and continues to do um, for our consumers. Um, Jill, is there anything else that you want to talk about Indiana wine wise before we wrap up today? Well, I, I'd like to mention, you know, I forgot one very important fruit that now I'm thinking about it. Um, and that's apple wine that they're mm. making the ciders with now. Yeah. Um, ciders have really taken off. And, and I think it's a great, um, it's a great compliment to beer or wine and kind of what falls in the middle there are ciders. Cause they're a lot of times they're a little drier. They may be a little yeastier, but I think they, um, I think folks who like beer are more apt to try a cider before a wine. So that kind of gets you into the, that wine mode. And, um, we've been to a lot of great cideries lately. So, and meads are pretty hot too, because they can't forget the meads. That's right. Meads are made different. That's right. Meads are made from honey. And, um, so, and in my opinion, you know, you know, meads are kind of more like that. Mm, kind of more Celtic like um, I think of the Vikings or something I don't know what it is about meads but they're kind of and I don't mean dirty but they seem more natural or more you know um, 
I don't even know how to explain that, but the fun thing with meads are that you can do anything with them. You can add fruits, you can add flavors, sparkling. Um, we had, what did we have, Katie, up in? So we were at Misbehaving Meads in um, Valparaiso, is yes. that where Chesterton? What was their address? It was in, it was in Valpo, I believe. Was it? Okay, somebody fact check that location. But we had a, um, a tea, a tea-based mead. Um, was it chai tea? Now it's escaping me. Yeah, it was like Thai and ginger, right? Yeah. Um, it was so interesting. I don't even think I have notes on it. And the other one was a, um, oh my gosh, what was it? It was more of like a, a we had a banana, a banana feed. It was more of like a milkier texture. Um, do you remember what that one was? It was so different. We both said it was very overpowering, but only in a good way. Um, mm -hmm. But it was just some something that we had really never had before. Oh, here we go. Um, very interesting. But they had tons of different flavors. It, it was Siam I Am. Yeah, and what was in that? It's coconut cream, orange blossom honey, and Thai tea. Yeah. But it was cloudy, yeah, and it was spritzy, and it would have paired well with um, Thai foods or you know even something spicier like that. It was really interesting. Very interesting. So that again was at Misbehaving Meads in maybe Valparaiso. Val it is Valpo. It is Valpo. Okay, right off the right from the county court or the the courthouse square. It's. Yeah. Right off there. And kind of right across diagonal the block from um, Aftermath Cidery as well. That's right. So, all right. Well, Jill, thank you so much for joining me on um, this episode of The Pop Swirl. It was great dissecting the Indiana wine industry, um, really learning the history. And we have lots more history coming up with um, Jim Butler and some of our other guests that I have planned later on. So cheers to the Indiana wine industry. Cheers to all of the things that you do that fit under your umbrella. And um, thanks for just keeping the Indiana wine industry moving forward. You and cheers, your everyone. sniffer nose. <laughs>